Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Luke chapter 24, verse 1 through 12, 52 and 53, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 and 17. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home and marveling at what he had happened. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. The word of the Lord. The Christian faith does claim a lot of different things. Uh, We claim a particular worldview as Christians. Christians have a particular epistemology or an understanding of knowledge and truth. Uh, There are Christian principles and Christian philosophy and Christian morality. Uh, But of course, as we also know, there are endless conceptions of such things, of principles and philosophies and morality. There are endless epistemologies and uh, philosophical bases to, to base your life on. So the basic question then becomes... Which is correct? When there's a plethora of options, which is correct? And when belief systems clash, which should be believed? When worldviews clash, which are to be embraced? When perspectives on morality clash, how do we then know what is actually right and wrong, good and true? And why in the world, where, when there are endless possibilities and ideas... Should the Christian faith not just be added to a long list of other viable options? Why should Christianity be believed, and why should it even be tolerated, considering some of the things that it claims? Well, there's a few, maybe, perspectives on that. For some, some might say, you know, Christianity, it has a rich you know, philosophical tradition that has produced a lot of good things over the course of its uh, history. Right? There, there are countless uh, ways in which it's contributed to the culture and the society in which we live. There are many who value Christianity. 
uh, because it's been, from their perspective, kind of the backbone of Western civilization. And so as a result of that, they can appreciate what the Christian faith has to offer the world because of what it's done through culture. But here's the problem with that perspective, for me anyway. I don't think that really cuts it. I don't think our contributions to various good things in the world, that Christian faith's contribution uh, really does much to argue whether or not Christianity is worthy of time. Because the other thing that could be said is that not only has Christian Christianity maybe at some, in some points offered good things, the opposite I think could also be true. That there are actually good reasons to reject Christianity based on whether or not it's contributed good things to society. Right? The idea, of course, being that Christians over the course of history uh, have done terrible things. Right? There's, there's been good, some good Christians for sure, but there's also been terrible, terrible Christians over the course of history. I mean, consider you know, many of the, the go-to uh, people that we would condemn now. You talk, think about things like the Crusades going back a while and the violence that came against others who disagreed with Christian doctrine. You think about the unjust wickedness that took place in much of colonialism. Many of, the, uh, um, many of those who promoted colonialism, of course, being Christians. You think about the enslavement in our own history, the enslavement of Africans, the genocide of the indigenous, Jim Crow and all of its effects. More modern history, you think about the treatment and the marginalization of the gay community during the AIDS epidemic. Many of that marginalization happening because of Christians. And even today, you know, for many, not all Christians are racist, but it sure seems like most racists claim to be Christian. So what do you do with all that? Sure, Christianity's contributed some good things, but it's also contributed a lot of, seems like anyway, contributed a lot of bad things. So where does that leave us in relation to whether or not we should believe it to be true? Well, here's what I want to put in front of you. I want to say that I don't actually think looking at the good or the bad of Christians ought to determine whether or not Christianity is fundamentally true and whether or not it should be believed. Because here's what we know. It's not going to ultimately be sufficient to look at how Christians respond to the claims that we hold to be true. Because here's what we do need to consider about whether or not Christianity is true. The single reason why anyone should give Christianity any time of day is the event that took place 2,000 years ago that we celebrate today. The single reason why Christianity ought to be considered as true is because of the resurrection of Jesus. This is why Paul rightly states in our passage, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Christianity, just know, is a useless religion, a useless faith, without an actual, literal resurrection of Jesus. But if the resurrection of Jesus did occur, if it did actually take place, we have to wrestle then with all the claims of Christianity. Everything now begins to orient us around the resurrection. And so what we're going to do today all of that to say, we're starting this new series called The Resurrection today. And over the course of the next nine weeks or so, we're going to be looking at some of the most pressing issues of our day, and we're going to see how the resurrection informs the Christian understanding of things like there being only one way to God, 
How does the resurrection inform our understanding of the sexism, racism, and bigotry in the world? How does the resurrection inform how we are to view and understand and interact with unchristlike Christians and innocence and suffering and sex and sexuality and uh, the pursuits of diversity and environmental stewardship? We're going to hit on all of these topics to see how the resurrection informs uh, those, uh, the Christian understanding of those things. And so I would say, if you're interested in hearing that, follow up with us over the next several weeks. But what I want to do today, I want to lay for you a bit of a foundation. Because in the coming weeks, we're going to assume that the, resurre- the resurrection took place. And therefore, ought to shape our thinking. It's an assumption that the Christian faith is not actually useless. And so what I want to do today is I want to try, best I can, to present to you why you should believe that the resurrection actually took place. Why it matters, why it's so central to the Christian faith. And to do that, I want to take two approaches. Number one, I want to consider the reasons why we should actually believe that a physical resurrection took place. Right? So we'll call that the historical reasons. But then I want to give you the, the reasons why it's at the center of what Christians believe. Right? So the theology, we'll call it. So let's take a look at the history of the resurrection and also the theology of the resurrection to see why it's so central. So the first would be this, just historically. Uh, it's at least worth stating up front that there are certainly a wide variety of opinions about the resurrection of Jesus. There are some who would say it's you know, just a legend, it's just a myth created by people who wanted to start this new religion, uh, that whatever, the Bi- whatever is described in the Bible about the resurrection is not literal. It's just uh, referencing, you know, some kind of spiritual enlightenment that maybe the, the followers of Jesus had. Uh, they didn't actually see him rise. They just kind of had an enlightened vision of him or something. Uh, there would be others, uh, other world religions in particular, who would say that Jesus never actually died. He just kind of looked like he died. There was an appearance of death upon him, but he never actually died and therefore never rose again. But see, none of those opinions and perspectives actually take seriously the accounts of the resurrection, right? The actual historical uh, facts and truths that can be tested as to whether or not a physical resurrection occurred. Let me put in front of you a few of those. The first would be this. Let's just consider Jesus for a moment. Again, let me just say on the front end, most scholars of antiquity affirm that Jesus really did exist. It at least needs to be worth, at least needs to be stated because there would be some who would deny that Jesus even existed as a person, But many have, over the course of history, written about this historic person. You've got um, as far back as non-Christian ancient historians like Josephus who were writing about a man named Jesus on several different occasions. But then you've got, even today, many uh, scholars, even the most skeptical scholars, who would say, yeah, you know, Jesus existed. They may deny the things that Christians believe about who Jesus was, but they don't argue that he didn't exist. He existed. So we at least start there. But then the question, of course, is the debate really shouldn't be around whether or not Jesus existed. The debate is really around whether or not Jesus is who Christians claim him to be. And of course, did he actually die and then actually rise again? And that's where we have to look at the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, admittedly, those are the primary texts that Christians are going to point to about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we need to consider whether or not those Gospels actually house 
reliable, trusted information about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, what I want to put in front of you uh, quickly um, is something that people have literally spent their entire lives studying. What I'm about to tell you in the next five minutes or so, uh, five minutes or so, people dedicate their whole lives to studying. Uh, and so if you're interested in maybe reading up more on this, again, go to the website. Uh, we've got resources there. But there are two exhaustive resources that I want to consider uh, they consider this at length, and I'm just going to put in front of you. Uh, one book was by Richard Baucom. He's a historian that specializes in ancient literature. He wrote this groundbreaking book, a book a number of years ago called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, where he argues that the Gospels uh, are not historic traditions, but rather they're oral histories, uh, and he explains that in depth. Uh, and then the other one is N.T. Wright. He's a New Testament scholar. He wrote this overwhelmingly big, fat book uh, called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Uh, if you're really hardcore about wanting to read about it, uh, that's one that you could do. But he looks at it historically, theologically, even sociologically. And I want to just give you a very small taste of some of the things that they argue in those books, right? So small taste of what is cumulatively like 2,000 pages worth of uh, content. So you're welcome. The first one would be this. One of the things that they point out is we need to consider the timing of the Gospels, right? When the Gospels were written. So many scholars, including non-Christian scholars, would acknowledge that the Bible, um, the Bible books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially Mark, were written very, very early after the life of Jesus. Specifically, that the accounts recorded, recorded were recorded within the lifetime of those that were mentioned in the book. And I note this because if the Christian writings are going to be reliable about this historic event. They need to have, at minimum, be written early. Right? You can't trust documents that don't have you know, what would be called original source material in them, meaning we want to have eyewitness testimony. And the Gospels provide that for us. This is kind of the historical record. So that's the one thing. They were written early. The second thing to consider, though, is also the, the way in which they were written, the genre that they were written in. There are those who might claim that the, the Gospels, they're you know, ancient fiction, they're fantasy, they're myth. But according to Bauckham, according to Wright, that could not possibly have been the case since the characteristics of myth and legend in ancient literature were very specific. And the Gospels don't actually have any of those characteristics at all. The Gospels are written with all the markings, not of a myth, but of ancient history. Let me give you a few examples of what I mean. Um, here's a, a small sampling. The first thing to consider in, in the passage that we just heard read, let me, let me point out those in particular. Right? You could do this in pretty much every book, but let's look at Luke. Consider this uh, resurrection account in uh, Luke, let's see, 24, particularly in verses 1 through 12. It's important to note who the witnesses of the resurrection were. Right? This is one of the reasons why we can actually trust that this was written from a historical point of view, because the people who first witnessed the resurrection are women. And to put a more fine point on it, the first people to proclaim the resurrection are women. Now, why does that matter? It matters because in that day and time, women had very low status. So much so that their testimony wouldn't have even been admissible in evidence uh, in courts, neither the Roman court or the Jewish courts. And so at this time, no one attempting to deceive others by making up a story would have women as the first eyewitnesses. It would ultimately, for those people of the day, undermine the credibility of the entire account. 
And so the point being is this, is that in that day, you would not make women the first to see the resurrected Jesus unless it actually happened. And now just as a bit of a side note, it's also worth recognizing, very important to recognize there, that Christianity introduced a whole new way of relating to those who were once marginalized. The gospel of Luke and Acts in particular upend ancient structures of patriarchy. Because often what you find is women and the poor and the immigrant and others who would have been viewed as in some ways being lower class, they're exalted, they're centered. And I think this is one of the ways that God is focusing his attention on those who were marginalized by ensuring that it was these women who were the first to witness the resurrected Jesus. We're going to talk more about that in week three when we talk about sexism, racism, and bigotry. Another plug for coming, coming weeks. But the second thing that's interesting about this, um, this uh, uh, account, right, why we could trust it as, as history, is also the style of the narrative. Again, look at in Luke 24. Uh, it's not written, like we said, like uh, myth would have been, but it's written from an eyewitness account kind of perspective. Right? Legends would have to be written from the viewpoint of like an omniscient narrator usually that is telling you the whole story, who knows all, sees all. But what we see in the Gospels, the Gospel accounts, are these very limited perspectives. Right? We only see what the people interacting with the world see. So as an example, look at verse 18. There's a guy named uh, Cleo. Actually, do I have that in the reading? I don't know if I put that in the reading. No, I did not. Okay, so in, <laughs> just trust me on this. In verse 18... In verse 18, there's a guy listed there named Cleopas. Now, I don't have any idea who this man is. We don't know who he is. And then what's also interesting is that later on, Luke is very careful to make sure that uh, a woman named Joanna is mentioned and that Mary, the mother of James, is listed. Why? Why are these names inserted into the narrative? They're inserted because in ancient times, this was a lot like footnotes for eyewitness accounts. It was a way of saying, listen, I'm about to say some really crazy things to you about what happened. And if you don't believe me, here are some names of some people that you can go ask. Legends aren't written that way. Historical narratives written that way. The third thing to put in front of you about why we can trust some of these as historical narrative is also the difference in perspectives. You know, one of the things that's interesting if you if you read those who are critical of the gospel messages, the gospel stories, as they will say things like, why does there seem to be differences in the various narratives? You know, uh, one, one person will tell the story one way and say that people said one thing, but then if you read it in another, one of the other gospels, it seems slightly different. Why are those different? They're different, so I can't trust any of them. But here's what's interesting about that. Number one, this is a bit of a side note. A lot of the differences are pretty inconsequential to the main uh, story that's taking place. But think about the way that we all tell stories. We all can be part of the same event, go out and tell the same story, and guess what? We're going to tell the story slightly differently. It's just how that works. In fact, I would say if the four gospel message, messages were perfectly lined up, that actually seems more suspicious to me. Because then it seems like they actually had some kind of collusion together. But those slight differences matter. That's why we have four of them. We've got the testimony of multiple people about what took place. The last thing let me to say about that is this, about why we can trust it. And this one's probably the most compelling for me. Look at verse 52. That I know I put in there. Verse 52 is a stunning verse. It says, 
and they worshiped him. They worshiped him. Now, why does that matter? (laughs) It matters because ancient Jewish people would have been the last people on the planet willing to openly worship a human as God. Their paradigm and worldview absolutely would not allow that. Even today, it would not allow that. Many, uh, even today, won't even say or write the name of God out of reverence for him. And yet what we see here is that they immediately started worshiping Jesus. Why is that? It's because something shattered their paradigm. They had watched Jesus brutally die, and now they're seeing him resurrected, and the only thing left for them to do was to worship him. Now, historically, I mean, there's so much more that could be said. Historically, there's a lot that could be said about why we can trust that this event actually took place, that Jesus is not some legend or some myth. The resurrection is not some fairy tale, but rather the gospel accounts are trustworthy historical documents. So if that's the case, let's just presume now that that is the case, the resurrection took place. Why is it so central to the Christian faith? Why would Paul say, without it, your faith is meaningless, it's worthless? Let's consider that quickly with theologically. Why does the resurrection matter? If it took place, there's two assumptions I want us to walk away with today. I hope all of us will. If the resurrection happened, then Jesus and his word are true. And if the the resurrection happened, Jesus and his promises are assured. His word is true. His promises are assured. Let me explain to you what I mean. Number one, Jesus and his word are true. If the resurrection happened, then everything that he said about himself is true. He has been vindicated in that sense. So, we look at passages like 2 Timothy 3, which tell us that all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. If the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then honestly, 2 Timothy 3 is, is purposeless, meaningless. Everything we just read is meaningless, purposeless. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, who cares what the Bible says? Who cares what Christians have to say about salvation and morality and the meaning of life? It's all nonsense. But if it did actually take place, then God's word, everything that Jesus taught, must then be true. The resurrection validates the word of God. And so when Jesus makes statements like he does in John 3, that whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. His resurrection validates those kinds of statements. When Jesus says in John 5 that the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son and has given him authority to execute judgment, the resurrection validates that Jesus is one with authority who will execute judgment. John 14 tells us, uh, Jesus tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. The resurrection validates that kind of statement, that no one comes to God except through Jesus. Sermons like Jesus' Sermon on the, uh, Sermon on the Mount that teaches us to care about the poor and teaches us about anger and lust and sex and so many other things. If Jesus' Jesus's resurrection occurred, we have to wrestle deeply 
with the things that he commands us to do. And yet, though we have been given these commands, Jesus also tells us in Mark 10 that no one is good except God alone. We're reminded that none of us can be good and righteous enough for God, that we all stand condemned. Romans 3 tells us that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And so as a result, no one will be, de- be declared righteous in God's sight by their works. I mean, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all of that is nonsense. Who cares what the Bible has to say about our condemnation or about our sin or about our inability to be good enough before God? But if he did, then you and I are bound and obligated to believing such things to be true. If he raised from the dead, Jesus and his word are true. And the bottom line is that we stand condemned before God. But not only if the resurrection is true, is Jesus and his word and all of those things true, are true. But the other thing is also true, is that Jesus and his promises are assured. You know, Jesus and the apostles, they left no uncertainty about our position before God because of our sin. Sin being our rejection of him as Lord over our lives. And so we must take seriously the problem of sin. But if the resurrection of Jesus took place, then all of those are the negative side, the negative reality of our rejection of God that necessitated the cross of Christ. But if the resurrection happened, then there's also a positive side. There is a positive side of Jesus and his word being true. And those are his promises because his word gives us promises to those who trust in him. John 11, Jesus says that I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's a promise. That is a promise that is proven to be true because of the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, what does that mean? It means what Romans 6 tells us, that though we will experience death in Christ, we too shall experience new life. It means 1 Thessalonians 4 that tells us that we, um, though we will be dead, uh, in, though we are in, when we are in Christ, we will rise again. It's what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, that death has lost its victory, for Christ has a, uh, conquered death. It is a victory that is ours as we trust and we believe in him. It's what Revelation 19 through uh, 20 tells us, which describes that Jesus will return to completely defeat the powers of sin and death. And it's what Revelation 21 tells us that describes God's restoration of the cosmos, a new heaven, a new earth, not one marked by sickness and death, but rather one marked by the presence and the glory and the restoration of God. You know, heaven is not some ethereal, distant dreamland. It's a restored creation, free from sickness and death and sin. And as Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ did not rise from the dead, none of this is true. None of it matters. But if he did, what wonders await those who trust in him? Let me close with this. You know, I, I trust and I believe that God is in pursuit of all of us right now. It's something his word continually reminds us that he is constantly pursuing us. He sent his son to accomplish a work that you and I could not accomplish. And Friday, we celebrated him taking upon himself, uh, the, the son of God taking upon himself our sin on the cross. 
But today, we celebrate the other parts of this Holy Week celebration, the resurrection, an event that actually took place, an event that proves Christ's reign, his victorious reign over sin and death and all the things that crush us, all of which he does out of love. But here's what I want us to walk away with and consider, that this Easter, I want, us to, uh, I want to encourage all of us to look at the resurrection of Christ with new eyes. Certainly to see him dying for you, but to also see him resurrecting for you. If that actually took place, how should that then change the way that we view our relationship to him? How does that then change the way that we live our lives? You know, we talked earlier in our prayer about life is just a balancing act of experience, grief, and sorrow, but also hope and joy. And I wonder, to what extent do we find that balance happening where we look at our grief and our sorrow, but then we look to the resurrection to find hope and joy in the midst of it? What I want us to do is I want to give us time, and we're going to have a moment just to reflect on that, to look and consider the resurrection of Jesus, to consider what that might mean for us. And I trust that as we look upon the resurrection of Jesus, we trust that work that the Spirit of God meets us there and encourages us in all the different things we'll experience in life. I pray that for you. I pray that for myself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you that it's a work that we can trust actually took place and happened. We also thank you that there are numerous promises associated with it, promises of new life, promises that we will be made fully righteous and pure, promises that we will experience the restoration of the cosmos. And so would you help us to not see the resurrection of Jesus as a nice story that we consider once a year, but central to our lives, central to what we ought to believe about who you are and what you've done. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.